Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, we talked about eponymous foods this week. Mm-hmm. What a fun one to research. Yeah. They're not always fun, so this one was like a breath of fresh air. Um, Although I feel a little bit like I was playing a culinary version of Two Truths and a Lie. Oh, yeah. Because I love two of these items and hate the third. (laughs) What have you got against Granny Smith apples? I don't like tart and bitter things at all, so that's what it is. I also have, um, I mentioned at the top of the episode, this strange thing. That my in my relation to Granny Smith apples was very confused for a long time because mm-hmm. I knew that that was the name of a food. And at one point when we lived in the Pacific Northwest and I was still quite a small kid, we had this tree that grew over our driveway. Mm-hmm. And my mom would just reach out and pick apples off of this apple tree as she drove down the driveway and just eat them while she drove. She kept a shaker of salt in the car because she liked to salt her apples. She would just eat these apples. And she called them Granny Smith apples. They were not Granny Smith apples. They were crab apples. Oh, sure. um, Which, to me, they were very bitter and gross. Um, But she loved them. And so I remember when I first was actually exposed to a Granny Smith apple, I was like, what is this kind of some kind of irradiated magic version? Like, it's huge. What is this? Um, no, that's a Granny Smith apple, you fool. And I was just, I had been very confused by misinformation in my childhood. <laughs> yeah, we had, um, I think, three apple trees that were situated at the end of the plot where we grew all of our vegetables. And I have no idea what variety of apples these were. But I honestly don't remember any of them ever producing what seems like an edible apple. <laughs> right. Um, they were very hard and very small. And like it's I have no I have no idea what the thought process was in planting them. Wait and and whether they were intended to be like eating apples that just never produced well, or if they were intended to be like crab apples that we would use for some other purpose total mystery. Um, My other big memory is that as a child, I, in my memory, there were exactly two types of apples available at the grocery store, and they were Red Delicious and Granny Smith, and those were your apple choices. That was it. You have red ones or green ones. And so, as I got more into my adulthood and learned there were all these other kinds of apples also. Yeah. uh, That are now more widely available in grocery stores. And now at our farmer's market in the fall, here'll be like, here's 17 different types of apples. It's, It's very exciting to me. Well, and some of that is because the field of apples has expanded, right? As people have cultivated them and, and crossed some apples with other kinds, there are a lot more apples um, and apple varieties than they there were when we were kids. There are certainly some more naturally occurring ones that exist mm-hmm. that are just not mass produced. So we there's a whole wealth of them that we just haven't encountered yet, probably. But um, yeah, I similarly was like red apples or green or yellow apples. Those are the options. Um, and I just knew that the green ones were always tart, and I didn't want any part yeah. of that. Um, I am also 
not that big a fan of apple pie. Oh, yeah? I don't have anything against it. I'm not like, bleh, bleh, apple pie. But, like, in the realm of pies, it's one of the... Le- I'm not a big fruit pie person in general. Mm-hmm. I like something more custardy, like a pumpkin oh, sure. pie or a, mm-hmm. a sweet potato pie or, you know, any of those that have that kind of texture. Like, yes. Um, fruit pies less so, even though they're often so spectacularly beautiful. How do you feel about, like, the fruit tarts that have, a, like, a custard base with the fruit on top? Those are okay. And I did, it was through, um, you know, uh, French food that I started to like, like the smaller little tarts and like a pear tart. Forget it. I love those things. Um, That often, though, has to do with like spectacularly buttery crust. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm here for the bread component, but I will eat the fruit. That's fine. Um, I can imagine listeners who have a long familiarity with our show wondering whether they can expect uh, Nellie Melba to be an upcoming Saturday classic because she is the namesake of Melba Toast, which we talk about in that episode. She inspired Auguste Escoffier to make a couple of different things. Yeah, so if you're thinking, hey, is that what's going to come out? The answer is sadly no, (laughs) because there is a window of time back in the history of our show where for uh, unclear, mysterious reasons, the high-quality sound file of the recording never got in the archive, and that's one of them. And we have re-released a few episodes where we only had a lower-quality version, but it's it's not something that we try to do often because it just yeah. sounds a lot different from what the show sounds like now. Yeah, and in the case of Dame Nellie Melba, that was two episodes, so that yeah. would be committing to two Episodes that don't sound great on Saturdays. Um, So, yeah, just not as ideal. Uh, There are lots of foods named for people. So, like I said, this could be an ongoing fun thing that we do periodically. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also another detail that I wanted to mention. It was not really germane enough to (laughs) to anything for me to include it in the episode. And that is that... One of the accounts that Ignacio gave of that first creation of nachos, he mentions that the women that came to hang out and and eat and ask for a snack were drinking Chico's. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I was reading this on like a newspaper archive thing. So I'm like, is, does that really say Chico? Does it say something else? What is a Chico? I did not know about this drink. I'm certainly going to make one. Um, It's tequila and blackberry liqueur with simple syrup and lemon juice and a little club soda on top. And it sounds so delicious and refreshing to me, even though I'm not a big tequila person. I'm right with you on all of the things you just said. Yeah. Um, I also think that would be great if you subbed out another spirit for tequila if you don't like it. Mm -hmm. You can make that with vodka. It'd be great. (laughs) Possibly gin. Also great. It That sounds like it would be good with gin in it, honestly. Especially yeah. some of the gins that have some more fruity notes in there. Yeah, that blackberry liqueur is going to bring out some cool stuff. But um, I just was like, what is a Chico? How did I not know about this? <laughs> uh, so now I'm all excited about that. And that's a different thing. I don't know what that's named for at all. I only found the recipe. And it's also called sometimes a couple of other th- things that include the word Chico in it. But that one uh, got my attention in there. <laughs> 
I also ate about um, probably seven plates of nachos while researching this episode. Yeah, you you texted me a picture of nachos for the weekend. I did. I was like, um, Brian, we're going to the store and we're getting nacho ingredients. It's like, okay. That was a very hard sell. Not. Um, Yeah, and then I ate nachos several times this weekend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... uh, the summer before last, pre-pandemic times, uh, we had some family come and stay with us for a weekend. Not a, It was like sort of a long weekend. And this included a teen niece. Uh, she had gotten up in the morning, and I was sort of telling her what was available to eat. And one of the things that I said was that we had the stuff to make taco salad. <laughs> the next thing I saw on her Instagram was this plate that's with a, the caption that said nachos for breakfast. And I was like, or that. You could make nachos instead of taco salad. Yes. Nachos. Always make nachos. Yeah. Um, I got into a discussion with a friend of mine about the many, many things that get piled on top of nachos sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not they still should be called nachos or not. But... I love them. I love them in all the experimental phases. I had some very spectacular lobster nachos recently, which were mm. like, you would sell a beloved family member for them. They're so mm. good. <laughs> they were so good. <laughs> so uh, the Cobb salad is also my favorite salad. So this was very self-serving. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Who doesn't love it? I mean, you see them now and they're made in a lot of different ways. People like to switch out those ingredients. Uh-huh. Uh, you'll often get blue cheese instead of Roquefort. You'll often get turkey instead of chicken. I have seen an a- Italian version with, like, salami on it as the meat. Yeah. So uh, I like all the component parts that go in there. I actually could not tell you whether I have actually ordered one at a restaurant, like, in my various salad ordering days. I don't know. I couldn't tell you how many times I've ordered those in a restaurant. I re- It's my go-to. If you're at a restaurant and I'm like, I don't know this restaurant, I don't know what's on the menu, I don't, it's, I will get the Cobb salad if it's there. Well, <laughs> we can hope that one day it will be safe for us to resume doing live shows and you and I can go out for our pre-show dinner and we will get some Cobb salads. That is a deal. We're going to do it. One of our episodes this week was about Grace Humiston, also known as Mary Grace Quackenboss, depending on when in the timeline we are talking about. She used uh, both of those names during her career. You will also sometimes hear people say that Quackenbush, um, because in that family tree, uh, there are folks whose uh, spelling has sort of evolved to be Quackenbush rather than Quackenboss which is sort of an interesting thing to poke around at while researching this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we kind of see that all the time, right? Looking at family trees in history. And I know that makes it tricky sometimes for people trying to trace their own genealogy or their own family trees. But uh, like all other language, names evolve, and sometimes in ways that um, make it a little bit tricky to connect the dots. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, and since that first book about her that came out in 2017 is the only uh, book that is dedicated just to her, there's lots of other room to poke around looking at stuff like old newspaper articles and old magazine write-ups and that kind of stuff. And uh, searching all of the different permutations of her name uh, was a process. Mm-hmm. Um 
because she did professionally use multiple different versions of her name over time. Um, and so I I think I had started out with Grace Humiston and I struck out in a bunch of the places where I normally would find old coverage of somebody. And it was because like a lot of that that had been covered in newspapers was from a little bit earlier on. The Ruth Kruger case, though, was a huge story. Yeah. The same way it continues to be a huge story when, like, a young, attractive white woman banishes, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, which was one of the things that, like, was a little frustrating to me about that arc in the later part of her career that was focused on the idea of white slavery. Because some of the other stuff that she had investigated really was a much bigger issue. Like, the international trafficking of laborers was an enormous problem that far overshadowed the supposed threat to white women by supposedly, like, immigrants and Black men and Jewish men who were theoretically running these huge white slavery rings in the United States. Right. That all continues to be true today. (laughs) Right. (laughs) In terms of... Uh, what people think of when you hear the word trafficking and what is way more likely to be happening when people are trafficked. Yes. I mean, we've, it comes up all the time that, you know, if, uh, uh, and this isn't, I, here's the thing. It's tricky because you don't want to act like anybody's disappearance is not important because theoretically they have an entire family of people who love them and are, are desperate for information or to get their person back. But we have watched this play out over and over where if a young white girl or white woman uh, vanishes or something happens, it's news everywhere. But in the meantime, there are countless Black women and Indigenous women and people of color who vanish and never get news coverage. Right. And it's kind of, it's a little bit, I don't know about you, it gives me that kind of deflating sigh of like, yep, it's never it's never changing. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a new phenomenon at all. Mm-mm. Yeah, the impression. So there's. Uh, she doesn't have. A, there's like not a lot of personal writing by her about her thought process behind things. But it really does seem like, as she faced so much criticism uh, about her allegations against the army, that she never really backed up with any kind of support that she slowly withdrew from the public eye. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that um, she did not become as as widely known as various other detectives and investigators who were living at the same time as she was. Because she just kind of, like, she kept going to court. She kept working at her, her law firm. But um, she did not work on nearly the kind of high-profile cases after that as she had before. Right. Can we talk about how much I love Julius Crone? <laughs> yeah. I just, I love him. I I feel like there's a fun story there. There's probably not a ton about him, but, you know, this idea that that he was just so, you know, got assigned to her as a translator and then was obviously so good and so committed to doing this work that they ended up essentially in many ways like partners. Mm-hmm. And I still love that he learned how to fix bikes to keep his roots yeah. up. <laughs> Because he doesn't want anybody to go away with an unfixed bike. <laughs> Just because he's really there <laughs> for to try a whole to other evidence. reason. Yeah. yeah. I love it. One of the, uh, it was in the book, actually, because uh, I did read the book. 
um, as I was working on this, uh, described him as kind of a, like an unusual person to have been working as an investigator when he was first assigned to work with Grace. Like, he just had kind of a rougher personality than a lot of the other people who were working uh, in his same department. And so it's, it's I don't know, it seems like it turned out to be a generally great partnership between the two of them uh, with all of their investigations. I mean, many of which really helped to either exonerate people who had been wrongfully convicted or people who had been sentenced to death for things that that had the actual facts been known at the time of their first trial probably would not have resulted in the death penalty. That last case uh, where she suggested the exhumation and then really felt like that that he was kind of railroaded after that point. Um, right. I think she, I think that weighed on her afterward. Yeah. I mean, of course. Um, you know, the exhumation was more damaging than helpful. And yeah, I can understand how that might, uh, you know, up to that point, it seems like every every move she made would have bolstered her confidence, but that one probably took it out by a significant margin. Right. Uh, she's an interesting and complicated person. But I'm glad I finally, <laughs> uh, glad I finally did the episode. So a lot of times when something happens and we get a ton of requests for something, uh, sometimes that seems like that would be a weird time to do something. Like when another podcast has literally just covered them I'm usually not inclined to immediately also do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then we got that note from our colleague, Christopher, who uh, has, I think he sent us one more thing that I have saved and like, maybe do this at some point, but it's one that I've had a harder time finding information on. But I think that would make it like three for three of things that Christopher <laughs> has said you should do this. <laughs> He's a smart cookie. <laughs> he is. Uh, so happy, happy Friday again. Uh, whatever's on your plate over the weekend, we hope it goes well. We'll be back tomorrow with a classic episode, something brand new on Monday. If you want to send us a note, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And hey, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Uh, we're at the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.